It's the Class Teaching Podcast with James Crane. Welcome to the Class Teaching Podcast, the Durrington Research School podcast. It aims to explore educational research and provide insights into how being an evidence-informed practitioner can support teaching and learning. Educational research does not provide a silver bullet, but coupled with teacher expertise, it can provide us with tried and tested approaches that the evidence suggests may lead to promising outcomes. In each episode, we will draw upon the experience of a teacher with particular expertise in the area we are looking at. Darrington High School is a large coastal secondary comprehensive school based in West Sussex and has been designated a research school by the Education Endowment Foundation. You can follow us on Twitter at Durring Research. The purpose of this podcast is to help busy teachers like you connect with the latest thinking around ideas in teaching. In an accessible and easy format, we realise there is a wealth of blogs being published every week. The Class Teaching Podcast will start with me reading a blog and then spending some time with the author unpicking their thinking. This way you can listen on the drive to work or while walking the dog, rather than having to find the time to sit down in front of your screen during a busy day. Remote learning has taught us about questioning. In the third instalment of this mini-series from Durrington, we take a look at what we have tried, learned, and what we'll take forward from remote teaching in regards to questioning. Despite the obvious barriers to effective questioning in the remote environment, Teachers at Durrington and across the country rose to the challenge to ensure this remained a fundamental and effective cornerstone of our practice. What we have tried. The number of multiple choice questions asked and quizzes created has probably never been higher, but perhaps more importantly so is the quality of the questions posed. Through the use of Google, Microsoft Forms, teachers have created a vast bank of questions that can be used again and again. Due to the limited opportunity for immediate elaborative questions to explore student responses, the initial questions and potential answers have perhaps undergone much more planning and consideration than perhaps they normally would. An added benefit of the question banks being created is the enhanced consistency of questions being posed to the students across classes. In the first blog of this series, Chris Runnicles discussed how remote explanation had the beneficial impact of allowing field experts to explain concepts to the whole cohort. And these benefits are mirrored in allowing the field expert to ask questions of the whole cohort. We have posed questions in in the class stream within pre-recorded and live lessons. Importantly, we have given students time to consider these questions before cold calling on certain students to answer them later in the lesson. We have given students time to respond to questions posed and then ask students to respond simultaneously to prevent copying of responses. To fill the silence that can emanate from remote classroom, we have asked questions to stimulate debate and have bounced responses around the room. We have used moats, private comments and the live stream to ask elaborative questions. We have planned our questions so that they are harder to Google i.e. asking students to questions, questions that require them to apply their knowledge to specific examples or context, or asking follow-up questions such as what if. We have asked questions designed to promote student regulation and prompt them to plan and monitor their own work so as to replace our ability to intervene when work goes off track in, in face-to-face the classroom. What we have learned, remote learning has 
has only reinforced the idea that the quality of distractor answers in multiple choice questions is as important as the correct answers. As such, the quality of the distractors in the potential answer banks has been much higher, allowing for deeper diagnosis of student misconceptions. For example, Chris Runnicles, Assistant Director of the Research School, created a series of questions for the Year 10 History Cohort. On one question regard regarding the criminalisation of witchcraft, 32 of the 147 were correct, but over 70% incorrectly chose James I, allowing the history team to not only identify a knowledge gap, but also discuss the potential source of the misconception, and as such, how to address it in future teaching. Don't use names until you have asked, and given time to think about the question. This ensures all students remain engaged in the question and the thinking process until the very last second, bouncing the question straight over to students rather than feeding it back through, through us as the teacher, keep students listening and reading each other's responses. Giving students time to put their thoughts onto paper or screen can encourage students to consider the question more carefully before responding. This also has the added benefit of encouraging some of our quieter students to respond to questions. Linked to this, the remote classroom, especially the stream, makes it very clear when a small group of students are dominating question response and therefore the importance of teachers tracking who they have and are yet to question in a lesson. The importance of pausing. Somehow that nerve-inducing period of silence post-posing a question seems even more deafening in the online classroom, but more often than not, responses do come in. Without the pressure of an audience, many students will consider their response rather than saying the first thing that comes to mind, suggesting we need to give the students time. This has really re-emphasised the importance of allowing students thinking time after posing a question. The importance of planning our questioning. It is something that we have probably all remember being told during our formative years as a teacher or having even told our trainee teachers. However, in the face of a full timetable and other pressures, questioning can become ad hoc and planned on the hoof. While the experience and skills of many teachers means that they get by, the need for pre-planned questions in pre-recorded lessons has really driven home the importance of planning the questions you are going to ask within the lesson to best enable assessment of student understanding. Ensuring the part of, of this planning focuses on questioning that prompt and explore students' self-regulation so they become more practised in monitoring their own work. What we will keep. The bank of multiple choice questions is a fantastic resource for future formative assessment either in lessons or as homework. The Google Forms function that summarises the most incorrectly answered question allows teachers to quickly identify misconceptions and address these. We should also ensure that the quality of the distractors we include remains high when creating any new multiple choice questions. While the face-to-face -face classroom should negate the need to get students to respond simultaneously, as we have done in the stream, we can take from this experience the importance of not naming students until the last minute and giving students time to respond. As Fran mentioned in her previous blog in this series, this pause should often be up to twice as long as we probably feel is necessary. Furthermore, we may wish to consider that on our most significant questions, such as Hinn's questions, giving students the time to jot down thoughts may also support the quality of student responses. Remote teaching has made it much clearer when the same students are answering all of the questions. While discerning this in the face-to-face -face classroom is more challenging, it is imperative that we are constantly aware of who has been questioned and responded, so as to prevent domination by a minority. In the second blog of this series, Fran Haynes suggests using a seating plan to take every time you ask a student a question is an easy way to check who you have and who you have and have not called upon.
Using subject meetings to co-plan questions for forthcoming lessons, so these are effective in helping assess student understanding, including questions that will explore and promote student self-regulation. By Ben Crockett. Hi, so I'm joined now by Ben Crockett, who is one of the Research School Associates and part of the senior leadership team here at Durrington High School. Um, so I just thought I'd start with Ben, um, similar to how I've done with a lot of the, uh, of the podcast, is why this and why now? Why is this so relevant? So obviously, you know, going back in to, into the face-to-face classroom, obviously we, we want to work out what our, our kids know and what they don't know. Um, and obviously, therefore, questioning... It's, it's always an important part of teaching, isn't it? But I think it even it takes on even greater importance at the moment. You know, despite our best efforts, and I kind of mention it in the blog, we came, overcame a lot of barriers to questioning remotely, but it still will never replicate that face-to-face interaction and questioning you can do yeah. in, in, the, in the face-to-face classroom. Yeah, perfect. And one of the, the things I really like about this blog and the, and the series is the, the format, what we've tried, what we've learned, and then what we'll keep sort of really clear. And it's a nice process to go through. And I think that's a, a really useful place to start on questioning, but also when you're looking back at the remote learning period to think about what have we tried? What have we learned from that? Is there anything that's going to be beneficial moving forward? And I think your blog obviously highlights that really well. I just thought I'd start um, with sort of why would we are as a teacher? Why ask questions? What, what are we trying to get? What's the purpose? I mean... As I said a second ago, I think questioning is just one of those fundamental core skills of, of being an effective teacher. You know, I, I don't think you would have ever sat in a lesson as a student, as an observer, and not seen um, questioning as part of a really effective uh, teacher's uh, toolbox skill set. And you know, it, it says so many purposes. You know, we can obviously we can use questioning just simply as, as a as a behaviour management in terms of keeping students engaged. But perhaps more, and not perhaps, definitely more importantly, it's that ability for us to really uh, interrogate student understanding, ask those elaborative questions, develop their thinking, check what they know, what they think they know. It allows us to identify any misconceptions. You know, if your questions are planned, well, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. If you've got your, your you've planned your hinge questions into your lesson, they they basically are able they able to signify where you need to move on in the lesson if you're in a position if the students have gotten knowledge and the the understanding that you require for you to move on to the next part of the lesson where you know if you don't do that and your questioning isn't effective and it isn't well planned out that ability to actually judge the room and judge what your students know is is virtually non-existent yeah i completely agree um obviously with with questioning there are being a, a, a teenage student in a classroom, there are going to be potential barriers for, for them. What do you see as the, as the potential barriers and sort of what any ideas of how to, to combat them? I think the, the one, and I was actually doing some, some observations uh, yesterday, and obviously a lot of students, particularly coming back from the remote period, they, they've been able to avoid questions when they've wanted to, you know, on, online, question get asked, they don't want to answer it, it's very difficult for them, they, they just send the work in without answering it. Uh, I think that's going to be quite a challenge for some of them coming back because I was still see- I was seeing from some of our students that I don't know response for I'm not sure and hoping to avoid it. Yeah. Um, and I was talking with some of the teachers I observed about how we can go about that, how we can challenge them to still answer that question, maybe by rephrasing it, by turning it into a multiple choice, by maybe giving them the answer but then asking them to explain the answer back. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was quite interesting just to see that that change from some students. I think that just got used to not having to answer questions in, in the online yeah, and I think that's why this this sort of blog and this podcast at the moment is so relevant because we're getting students come back in that have been able to avoid answering questions in some format um, due to the remote learning period. So it's really crucial that we get that culture right in our classroom straight away. And 
we don't accept I don't know and the culture is that every single person in the classroom will be asked at least one two possibly three questions yeah. in a lesson on a range of things and and that they're engaged in in the questioning throughout again you know just really simple strategies of delaying the the name of when you're yeah. when you're giving a question saying the name of the student right towards the end of it so that actually all the students are engaged in listening to the question and thinking about it um, before you then decide who you're going to cold call on. Because yeah. obviously if you put the name at the start, great, that student's probably thinking about the question, but your other 25, 26 students in the class have gone, fantastic, it's, I'm not having yeah. to answer this question, and then they switch off. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I mean, I've been in a, I observed a lesson on Friday last week where the teacher um, was, was trying to use questioning and there was a little bit of behavioural issues, a couple of low-level disruption elements, and she went straight in with the name of a student, asked the question, realised what she'd done, 29 students had switched off. So she just said, actually, no, I've already asked you a question, I'm going to ask, and then pause for a second. Again, she got everyone back in the room thinking. So nice little subtle ways of doing yeah. it. Um, just on, on the idea of questioning, I think one of the common ideas here is that question has to be on sort of declarative knowledge in terms of recall of facts. Um, can you just explain sort of how you might go about looking at the procedural side of it? Yeah, so I think you're spot on there. The question traditionally, kind of those particularly closed answers, is what you know students like, and it, it can feel sometimes more successful for them and actually also for the teacher. Um, but I think you're right. That idea of procedural uh, kind of questioning, uh, I think it needs really careful planning. I think it's probably harder to plan than asking declarative questions, but getting students to explain the processes behind what they're doing, um, particularly, I know James, you do lots of stuff around metacognition, but those questions that get students to explain the process and the full yeah. thinking behind what they're doing and actually trying to uh, kind of make that really explicit to you. Um, you know, so quite often I will ask questions in my lessons when I'm, like it's for example, a GCSE lesson, I'm deconstructing an exam question, I'll be asking questions like, okay, so why have I underlined this word? What, what would be the uh, best approach to take here? What would you expect me to do in this, uh, in this response? Why have I used that sentence started there? And trying to get them to understand that it's not just about, yeah, can you recall facts and figures? Can you recall whatever land uh, erosion process we're talking about? But you're actually trying to get them to show their understanding yeah. of how they're then going to apply that knowledge. And that can be that can be really challenging for, for students. Yeah, and I think that sort of brings us to the next point. But obviously on, on that procedural side of questioning, I think that one of the really good places to look at there is sort of Socratic questioning, um, where where you sort of, well, do you agree with this? Why do you think that's what, is there an alternative yeah. way of looking at this? And I think that, along with the elaborative questioning in terms of how, when, why, where, who, um, does develop student thinking. And I think I think Dylan Williams says that the purpose of a question is to elicit student thinking. Yeah. So if a student is, yes, it's important to recall facts, figures, numbers, etc. But if we're using our questioning to elicit thinking, we're going to hopefully move students to become more self-regulatory, which is what everyone in a, in a school setting wants. The, um, I did a webinar for the, the research school the other week on uh, challenging high starter point students. And one of the things I'm talking there is the Socratic questioning, because... It's a really easy way, just printing it off, sticking it on your desk uh, with the, the sentence stems, particularly the sort of top two levels of it, um, that kind of look at that idea of kind of expanding students' thinking and, and questioning it. Um, and I think one of my favourite ones there is just the what if, playing the devil's advocate question. So if they give you a response, great, but you know, the, the response to any question should be another question followed up at, at taking the level to the, to the next stage. Um, and that kind of what if playing devil's advocate so yeah okay so you've given me that answer but what if this changed yeah. and that 
that just again it makes the students apply their knowledge in a different way it prevents them just from recalling facts and figures because they're then having to take their knowledge and put it into maybe a slightly different situational context which they probably haven't been confronted with before yeah yeah brilliant um obviously we, we've spoken a lot about um question as a whole we looked at multiple choice questions in the blog and you've written some really good useful stuff about that can you just sort of explain to me the process of how you or your departments might plan a met- uh, multiple choice question um just to sort of explain the, the depth of it yeah i think multiple choice questions are get you know they sometimes get a bit of a bad press because they're potentially too easy to answer and and i think that's that kind of conception of them's come out of of poor planning that if multiple choice questions are planned poorly yes they can just literally be too easy to answer they can be guessed and they don't really tell you that much um but I think this remote period, I think probably most teachers agree, they probably never had such a wealth and bank of multiple choice questions um, and, and resources. Um, but they take really careful planning as a team to sit down and work out exactly what you want to be in those questions. And I think the remote periods also really brought into light the importance of the answers or the potential answers over just the question. Yeah. Um, you know, I think historically maybe that the people have fallen into the trap of the just making sure, right, you've got the right answer and then you've got some like potentially right answers and that will do. Um, as a department, you know, we sat down and planned a huge bank of them and one of the things that we did is when we decided, right, we're going to ask this question, um, we then looked at, okay, so we know obviously the correct answer, but what, what distractors could we put in there and what actually could those distractors tell us about students understanding so actually we were not more interested but really interested in in the potential for if students get an answer wrong what does that answer actually tell us about their thinking right and that's a bit of a cultural shift away from just oh right if they got the right answer that tells us that they know that actually okay if they got that and they put that answer what does that tell us about their understanding and then how can we trace that back to a to a misconception so thinking of a geographical example um one that we did was looking at the idea of uh naming a process of, of mass movement and so we put slumping in there which is the correct answer but then we also put longshore drift which our students seem to regularly choose as the incorrect answer that was actually it was 70 uh, percent of our students in a, in a mini assessment that they did put that longshore drift as their incorrect uh, as the answer that they put which was incorrect and you know it was then working it back to well why have so many of them chosen the correct answer there and it was that realisation that because when we discuss in class cultural drift, we talk about it as a movement process, they were then linking mass movement with that. So it was a, a consideration, right, we need to go back and we need to reteach that. And we need to really clearly separate longshore drift, which is a movement material along the coast, versus mass movement, which is a movement down the, down a, down a slope. Okay. Um, and actually the incorrect answer there probably told us more than had they got the correct answer, which was, uh, which was firstly really interesting, but that meant that as a team, we had to really carefully plan what was the distractors we were going to put in there. Because if the distractors aren't good enough and they're too easily seen through by the students, they don't actually achieve anything. Yeah, and I think that's really important that the student can't get the right answer for the wrong reasons. Yeah. So if they're giving you that answer, it's because they've understood the terminology. Um, one, of the, one of the things that the, the PE guys have done here, I mean, Tom Pickford set, set it up as a really simple tool, a multiple choice question because students really get mixed up with training types. Um, and all he did was, after multiple choice question, there's a small box and the student has to write why that's the response. Um, and he then looked at the answer, yes, that's really important. But then the why was the bit that he used as, as his sort of formative assessment. So from that, I can take understanding that, yes, all of these students have thought X, Y, or Z. I need to then factor that into my planning. And I think that formative use of questions to direct your teaching does take careful planning. I think 
when you get to a certain stage in your teaching, you sort of think, oh, yeah, I can sort of plan these ad hoc. But it is really beneficial for you as a department team and a subject area to sit down and plan those questions that you're going to use and when you're going to use those questions within lessons. Yeah, well, I put um, into the blog, I put one of Chris Ranicle's examples from, the, uh, from history, yeah, looking at the idea of uh, who criminalised witchcraft. And he, you know, he found that answer really interesting, 70% of the correct, incorrect answer. But then it was also quite interesting talking to him further down because there was other questions that he'd put in that he'd kind of anticipated yeah. that students were going to get wrong and they hadn't. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting talking to him about that kind of uh, teacher bias and perception that he'd been expecting the students to get these wrong. So he, his kind of planning had initially been to, oh, well, I'm going to definitely have to go back over those areas because they'll definitely get this question wrong. And actually the reality was that they got those questions right and therefore, you know, quite correctly, he then looked back and went, well, I need to change my future plan then because rather than focusing on those things when 90% of the students are getting it right, yeah. I need to be focusing on, for example, the witchcraft one or, or whatever. And that's why the formative questioning and the planning of questions is so crucial um, and needs to be done um, to, to gain that student understanding because what you'll naturally do, as Chris has highlighted there, is you'll naturally think, oh, students really struggle with this because yeah. it's perhaps something that you might have struggled with. Um, so it's really important that you use your questioning um, with a fresh blanket to be like, right, they have actually got what I thought they didn't, but they've misunderstood this, so that's where I've got to go. And questioning is the, the most useful yeah, way of doing it. Yeah, we mustn't be led by you said, our, what our feelings are in it, or, or historical context. You know, if one cohort struggled with it in the past, that doesn't necessarily mean that this current cohort is going to be struggling. Yeah, brilliant. As ever, really good talking to you, Ben. I just want to finish with um, any further reading, if someone wants to sort of delve deeper into questioning, anywhere uh, you think we should send them? So, obviously, uh, one of them would be uh, the Kathleen Cotton paper, yeah. which is the effective question in the classroom. Um, you know, that's probably my, my go-to on that one. Um, obviously, if you've got any of the, the Making Every Lesson Count books as well, there's an excellent chapters. The question's one of the six principles there. So, again, that's one... Um, and there's some really good examples that we talked earlier about the I don't know response. There's yeah. um, some really good examples, particularly in the making of the history lesson count uh, with some examples of how to, to challenge that. Um, and then you've got uh, you know, your, 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 your sort of registration principles. Um, so yeah, pretty much. Good place to start. And if yeah. anyone's interested, um, let, let us know because we've, we've done a recent twilight on effective questioning um, that was recorded and we can share that with you. Um, as ever, Ben, thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to me and I'll uh, speak to you later. Thank you for listening to the Class Teaching Podcast by Durrington Research School. It's the Class Teaching Podcast with James Crane.